How's everybody doing? I'm uh, glad to be starting second season with a great episode. Uh, I got David Zell on with me, and David is uh, uh, part of ASAP, or Alabama Students Against Prisons. And uh, ASAP's a great organization that's doing some great work here. And uh, we talk a lot about uh, what they're doing, and uh, I'm glad to have him on to just dive deep really into uh, some of the issues that are facing our state, especially when it comes to criminal justice and uh, particularly our prison issues and uh, and the ways that we need to really reform the way uh, we house and, uh, and hold those that uh, have committed crimes in our state. Uh, part of that is also changing the laws to, uh, to decriminalize some of the things that are criminalized in our state, but uh, David and I talk about that plenty. I plan to release this episode on uh, January 6th. I recorded this episode um, on January uh, 5th with David, but uh, January 6th was a heck of a day in the United States of America, folks, if you didn't see. Um, and I say that with... Uh, a lot of animation in my voice, but I don't say that because, you know, I'm excited, of course, about anything that happened or I am, I am seeing anything in a positive light that took place yesterday because it was quite a shame. It was quite a shame. And, you know, I've covered for, for, for months, guys, about on this podcast, talking about where we are as a country the underlying issues as to what leads some people to to Trump and to extremism and to, to a lot of crazy things. And all of that aside, what happened yesterday was very despicable. And uh, certainly when you talk about threats to democracy, you talk about threats to the United States, you talk about what it means to be a true patriot in this country. No one that participated in the storming of the Capitol yesterday should claim to be some sort of American hero or patriot or anything uh, because it was, I think, the very opposite of all the values that this country is supposed to stand for. And it's also the coalescing of so many factors. Like we've discussed time after time again, there is the pandering that takes place with politicians for decades, and this happens on both sides, but we're going to focus on the right right now because that's who the main suspects are in this in this very, uh, very criminal act that took place yesterday. Um, but we can't forget the fact that so many politicians on the uh, Republican side egged this on and like Kyle Kalinske said who, who's a left wing commentator uh, he has Secret Talk YouTube channel he made an interesting point where he was saying you know there there are people that are so hard to paint for Trump that are like low income and, and you know trailer park living Americans who don't even benefit from many of the policies that he puts forward. 
there are policies that serve the 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 establishment the agenda of everything they claim to be against and so it truly is a thing of just like oh we want this guy in office because he makes us feel good we want this guy in office because he says the right things to make us feel good and Trump time after time again has obviously been someone that has I mean even yesterday has not has not made any efforts to try and calm the situation has done anything everything to put more gas on the fire and uh and you know there's talk of the 25th amendment and impeachment and look I'm all for whatever steps need to be taken to protect the uh the future of the country and to assure that the next two weeks can go by smoothly uh because in the words of a uh, a meme I saw on Twitter I'm a little tired of living through these historical events and so certainly there are steps that need to be taken to assure that the president cannot inflame tensions more cannot make the atmosphere even more hostile even more volatile and I mean, yesterday was just crazy, folks. I don't really know what else to say. It was just, it was really crazy. And we have to, we, we as a country, we, we really have to, we have to do some soul searching. I mean, I know I sound like Joe Biden right now or something. And like, you know, I, I, I have my grievances with that ticket. But straight up, Joe Biden will not be inciting violence. No matter what you say about Joe Biden, he will not be doing things to... Uh, promote violence in in the streets and there are some people that want to compare what happened yesterday to black lives matter protests and i'm here to have a conversation about the fact of the matter is anyone who destroys property and clearly does things with violent intent they should not be you know they should not be upheld as someone that's good and, and they should not be someone that is seen in a positive light when they are doing things to harm other people in the name of whatever they're trying to 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 advocate for, right? And the fact of the matter is what happened yesterday was incited by people that like openly spoke about it, like leaders like supposed leaders, but representatives, congressmen and women, they went up there and they egged these people on at this rally before they stormed the Capitol. You have Mo Brooks, who's a representative from my state, telling them to take down names and and you know, start start using violence as a means to get their way. Even after yesterday, even after all the insanity, they still kept it going. And so, like, when you want to have a conversation, folks, about comparing the summer protests in 2020 and the way that there was some violence with uh, the way people uh, went out and, and handled themselves during those protests, sure, we can have that conversation. But understand this. There cannot be an equating of good elected 
leaders telling people to get violent and encouraging violence to a few people on the street deciding to use a peaceful protest as a ploy or as a disguise to uh, commit violence and commit, you know, destructive acts. Because that's the reality of what happened in the summer during the Black Lives Matter protests. No one, no leader of that movement, no politician came out and said, hey, let's start breaking stuff. Go make your voice heard by getting, getting, getting violent. I mean, and, and they, these were the type of, of, of like language that was used by elected supposed leaders in uh, in Washington yesterday. I'm very ashamed of, of so many of the representatives in the state of Alabama. What is most shameful is even after the storming of the Capitol, even after they get all those people out and they go back to start certifying the electoral count again, all uh, of the uh, delegation that is Republican from the state of Alabama, except Senator Richard Shelby. I want to absolve him completely because I have my grievances with Richard Shelby, but in this moment, he was the least bad of Alabama politicians because every other Republican politician or, or elected representative and senator was objecting to the electoral count vote still, even after we saw what happened yesterday. Even after they know their cause is not just, and, and it's so disgusting, folks, because you have Republican politicians who are inciting this and who are say, you know, going with this whole idea that the election was stolen when they know it's not true. These are people that went to Harvard and Yale, man. These are people that go to all this, they go through all this just for more votes, just for more support, just for more money for their campaigns and, 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 and for their future campaigns. And there's no thought about what the actual consequences of their words and actions might be. I don't think there is. Because I don't think that they really think. Because the thing is, is like, they are politicians who are doing these things for political reasons. There are people who are, like, at the the rally yesterday and who ended up going into the Capitol. Those people live what they say. These people truly do believe this election was stolen truly do believe this election isn't over, truly do believe that Joe Biden is somehow trying to take over from Trump and take the election, take the... Like, they truly do believe everything Donald Trump says is truth. And when you play with fire, you get burned. And they've gotten burned. And what's sad is they've gotten burned and seem to put more lighter fluid on the fire, put more gas on the fire. In voting against the approval of uh, some electoral votes yesterday. So, you know, my thoughts on yesterday is, is, is pretty simple. Like, I think that 
where we are as a country. I mean, I, I say this all the time. You, you folks know this by now on the show. Like, there has to be some serious substantive changes to the way the economy and this government works and to assure that those that are at the bottom have more of a say. Those that are in the middle class and low income. And when I say middle class, I mean like $75,000 and below. Those type of households, they have got to be heard and listened to in government and, and in the way that this nation works. Well, we're going to continue to see just very, very, very desperate people doing very, very, very desperate and dangerous things. And I'm not trying to absolve them of personal responsibility. I keep wanting to make that clear. Anyone who decides to go and destroy something, it is not necessarily the government's fault for that. But the idea is that there are conditions that have led a person to feel that that was a justified act. And they have to be addressed. Those issues have to be addressed. Again, I don't want to make it seem like it is just those issues fault, right? But the individual there there's there's many people who <clears throat> have uh, committed terrible acts in the past simply because they feel there's no hope and there's the only thing they can do is to take some drastic action to change their situation no matter how delusional or how baseless their reasoning may be they're at that point many times they're at that point um, because it's 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 what they feel is the only thing they could do to improve their life and uh, we've got to make sure that uh, we can change that mindset for many people for as many people as we can right can we agree to that? Can we agree that we need to try and change that mindset for as many people as we can? And then we also have to, you know, beyond that, because even in a, in a world where we have, like, let's say we're in a world where we have all the policies that are, that are best for the for the people and, and everything's it's great, right? There's still going to be a, 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 a group of people who will be motivated by hate, will be motivated by fear, will be motivated by violence, will be doing things that are reprehensible and disgraceful. And and that percentage of people will be, you know, that they're still going to be there and they're still going to be In a place so that that's kind of where we have to, I think, have a conversation of like, well, how, like, the individual themselves have to have, you know, some type of, some type of, I think, soul searching, some type of therapy, some type of, like, there, there's a lot of people that need help in this country. I'm not trying to. You know, they need, like, personal help, things that government can help them with, things that, like, no one else but them can help themselves with, right? There there are people like that, but, um, or, or I'm not saying no one else but themselves can help, maybe a therapist can help, maybe someone, a psychological expert can help them. There's a lot of people like that, right? There's a lot of broken people in this country. Um, and there's always going to be, I think, a percentage of that, and no matter what society looks like, the, the hope is just that 
we do everything we can to mitigate that and to lower the amount of people that are in that group. And folks, my hope is that one day we can start to truly heal this country through not only policy goals that work and that help improve the lives of uh, of, of everyday Americans, but also um, assuring that America truly upholds the values and the principles that we're supposed to be ha- to have. And uh, and there's a lot of people that I think have been so disillusioned by the way government and, and, and society has worked in this country. They want to just get rid of all those values and, and everything, and, and, and they don't even... And the reason why is because they do not have any trust that those values are good for them. Because time after time after time, we see this government, or not just the government, we see instances around this country, like yesterday, where there's inequality in the way things are handled. There's an inequality in the way things are are uh, are taken care of, not only by government, but also by uh just the the way narratives are set and the media and there's a lot that we have to do better and uh, I'm not really sure what else to say about it folks I really don't know I kind of just decided to ramble a little bit before this podcast but we're getting close to uh, to a little past the 15 minute mark here so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this uh, little intro up. Folks, David Zale and I are going to have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy this first podcast of the new season. And uh, next week, I'll be back with another episode where I do discuss, um, you know, a little bit more about what's happening in the country and update you about what's been taking place and give you my thoughts on uh, the past month. I took off all of December and uh, here we are back at the beginning of January. And uh, let's see what happens, folks. Stay safe out there. Welcome to episode, first episode of the season for uh, season two of CC's Word Podcast. I'm very excited to have um, a great conversation in store for you, I think. Um, Mr. David Zales joined me today. Uh, David, why don't you introduce yourself to the crowd? Hey, how's it going? Um, my name is David Zell. Uh, I'm a lifelong uh, Alabama native. I grew up in Birmingham. And I'm uh, currently in my third year at the University of Alabama, uh, where I, if things go according to plan, uh, will graduate in three semesters uh, from now with my bachelor's in political science and my master's in public administration. Wonderful. Uh, I met David at a protest for, uh, it was held by Alabama Students Against Prisons, uh, ASAP is an organization that is really focused on trying to reform um, and, and really um, eliminate in many ways the uh, many parts of the, this, the very, uh, very draconian and very um, terrible in many ways prison system. And uh, David is a part of ASAP um, and has done a lot of work uh, with them. And, uh, I, and I'd love for you to kind of introduce ASAP to the audience and Tell us a little bit about what they do. Yeah. So um, not unlike this podcast, uh, ASAP started online. Um, I have been working for the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice uh, for a couple of months. And 
through kind of just meeting individuals in like the advocacy space in Alabama, uh, I found myself on a Zoom call with uh, three other students, um, two who had done uh, extensive work in Alabama, uh, most notably with the Auburn Justice Coalition, and uh, a young woman named Isabel, uh, who actually goes to Yale University, but is a lifelong Alabama native and, and plans on living here, who has also been working uh, for Appleseed, the ACLU. Uh, and we kind of just started talking uh, about the impending prison construction, the nature of advocacy in Alabama. And we're talking about really the role that students play uh, in, that, in that effort. And one thing we realized really quickly was that there are so many like fractured student groups across the state, uh, whether it's, you know, college Dems, YDSA, um, Justice Coalition groups. I mean, you name it, there's probably at least one college group on every campus who is either directly trying to make justice in Alabama fairer, uh, reform the criminal justice system, abolish prisons. I mean, however people fall in that spectrum, at least one group who's doing that or a group whose you know, efforts uh, that nicely dovetails into. And what we also realized was that there is not a single unified student voice. And you know, I'm of the opinion, as, of, as are the other founding members of, of ASAP, that one of the primary functions of, of student advocacy uh, is simply just building power uh, and being able to present a unified front to the public and to lawmakers that you know we are the next generation. We are the future leaders of, of tomorrow. We're the taxpayers of tomorrow. Um, in so many ways, just by virtue of our age, uh, we are really are the stakeholders in, in some of these and some of these problems and the solutions that are going to play out over a 30 year time frame. And so taking all of those things into account, um, we kind of were like, yeah, we need to try to help create a, a unified coalition of, of, of students uh, and not necessarily, you know, reinvent the wheel uh, in terms of advocacy. Like we're not trying to necessarily be like a, a different organization than, you know, what other people are doing, but just create a coalition of the existing student leaders and kind of through that unity, uh, amplify each other's voices, find our common ground. Uh, and, and, and that way we can say that, you know, we are a, a coalition of over a hundred students right now from almost every college in Alabama, you know, from I think like 18 different schools at this point. Uh, and so we sort of identified that need. And we also realized that the prison construction um, which, you know, I don't know for, for those of who are, who are listening how well-versed you, you may be in this, but Alabama is set to break ground on three new privately constructed mega prisons uh, on January 15th. And there are a lot of reasons why we think that's a bad idea. And we kind of were, we kind of realized this, this sort of fundamental truth about the nature of student organizing in Alabama, and we're confronted with a massive prison plan in the, you know, immediate future. And so we kind of just hit the ground running. I mean, before we even really knew what ASAP was or would be, we kind of were just like, we need to spread awareness about this issue. Let's stage a, a, a series of protests. And ASAP has really formed less as an idea and more, of, more out of reflection born out of action. Um, because we didn't have a lot of time to like sit around and figure out like the best way to do this. 
time was of the essence. And so we decided that we wanted to stage a protest on December 28th, where we called attention to Regions Bank headquartered in Birmingham uh, as being one of the last five banks in America that's still funding uh, CoreCivic, which is the company that's slated to build two of the new prisons that has a decades long track record of human rights abuses and uh, by all accounts has failed uh, in every other state that it's worked. And we wanted to call attention to regions for funding that group. And then on the 9th, uh, this month in January, uh, we're going to be in Montgomery, uh, zooming out a little bit and uh, just trying to gather perspectives and voices uh, from stakeholders, community members, uh, people all over the state, not just students, who know that there has to be a better way forward when it comes to Alabama's prison crisis than building three new ones. Um, and so a lot of what ASAP is, is still in the works, um, because like I said, we are learning about the organization uh, as, we, as we grow. And, and just because four of us founded the organization doesn't mean that it's really our place to decide what ASAP is. So we're really trying to you know, have meetings with everyone in the group, offer, uh, we have a very horizontal structure. We all just kind of like meet and discuss things and so we're really trying to listen and get as many perspectives and voices as possible and figure out together, like, what is the niche of student organizing in Alabama that we can fill? How can we build power in this state? And where can we best use that power? Where should we direct our, our finite energy and efforts? And so a lot of what ASAP is is still uh, dynamic and changing. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, we're just a group of college students united around the idea that Alabama has a prison crisis, uh, not because we don't have a lack of prisons, uh, but because we have laws that functionally ensure that no matter how many prison beds we have, there will always be more prisoners. And, you know, that's kind of what brought us to, to regions on, on Monday and uh, that Monday. And that's what's bringing us out to Montgomery uh, in the next couple of days. Absolutely. And I'm glad to hear that you, you guys are making some efforts to change what I feel is, is definitely something that is uh, a major issue in our state. But let me talk about when you talk about the prison um, and, and you talk about the growth of the prison system, in Alabama, one thing that is disappointing about that is how much money we as a state spend on prisons. And you, uh, you guys are very good at pointing this out. Remember like before the podcast, you had mentioned a stat that was very interesting where we're, we're spending about uh, 20 cents more than we were before on prisons, and, uh, or at least on the Alabama uh, Department of Corrections, right? And Well, yeah, we're we're not, saying... not, not 20 cents more. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, gotcha. 10, 10 cents of every tax dollar was going toward funding prisons. And now just 10 years later, uh, it's, it's 20%. So the gotcha. ADOC budget has, or 20 cents, the ADOC budget has doubled in 10 years. And, and is now slightly over 20% of our, of our state's spending. Gotcha. And we haven't seen any correlation with an improvement in the conditions or no. the quality of life for prisoners, right? Tell us about Not that. Not really. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of shocking to me that uh, the ADOC, with a large budget, has still managed to produce uh, the most dysfunctional prison system in the United States. And it's really disheartening to, in the face of that evidence, see that our leaders are throwing more you know, resources toward this group. I mean, we're really fighting fire with gasoline here. 
Um, and it doesn't matter what side of the, the political aisle you are. Uh, this plan is just inexplicable. I mean, whether you are someone who is fundamentally opposed to the concept of incarceration, or you are someone who thinks that prisons are a vital facet of society, yet you still believe in pragmatic, common sense policymaking, there is no reason that you would support this prison construction plan. Uh, it is going to, we're really just set to spend an ever increasing share of our state's finite resources on a problem, on a solution to a problem that we've tried before. You know, in, in 1976, uh, the uh, federal court found that Alabama's prisons were unconstitutional uh, because they violated people's Eighth Amendment protection from uh, cruel and un unusual punishment. And in response, our leaders built five new prisons. And over the decades, what that did was increase our prison population by more than 500 percent. And then when that was all said and done, in 2019, the Department of Corrections found that every day a person spends in one of the men's prisons in this state is a violation of their Eighth Amendment right. So we've tried this plan before. We have dumped money into expanding incarceration in Alabama, and yet inevitably we, we wound up uh, you know, in the same position. And it's not hard to see why that's going to happen again. We have laws, and I mean, in Alabama, you can steal $500 worth of property from like a, a car that's parked on the sidewalk, and that makes you a violent felon. I mean, we have over 51 crimes in Alabama, uh, I believe, that, that, that may be wrong. We, we, I think we have around 50 crimes in Alabama that, that constitute violent felonies, um, and some of them are pretty ridiculous. Uh, we have laws that say that if you commit three of those felonies, you go to jail for life and the key gets locked, you know, you, you, you know the key is thrown away. We, you know, 20% of our new prison admissions are for, or our population is uh, uh, nonviolent drug offenders. And the single largest source of new incarceration in Alabama is, is uh, drug possession. We spend $22 million a year locking people up for smoking weed. And so when you have a, a regulatory environment or a legal environment rather like that, uh, it's not hard to see why building new prisons isn't gonna fix the problem. Because no matter how many prison beds we have, we have laws such that there will always be more prisoners that can, than those beds can, can accommodate for. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fiscal side of this is, is truly one of the most, I think, compelling arguments uh, when it comes to uh, opposing private prisons, because we're seeing a conservative, a Republican governor. Uh, who's touting fiscal responsibility as the justification for this plan, uh, ignoring this pretty obvious reality. I mean, Governor Ivey is uh, set to replicate uh, the mistakes of the past on an even grander scale. And, you know, even with all of the, the, the concerns that, that progressives and, and, and other people bring up about the nature of prison construction, there is a strong principled conservative fiscal conservative argument against these prisons that's pretty you know the the, the state's response to is pretty paltry um and so yeah that is one of the the main reasons that i think young people should care about this issue you know whether or not like i said what you have a particular stance on prisons if you want to live in alabama it's going to be your tax dollars it's going to be your kids that are having worse funding for public or like less funding for for worse public schools it's going to be your roads that are like more poorly paved it's going to be our veterans who get less money i mean if you care about 
any issue in Alabama, if you think that the government in Alabama is good for any one reason, then it's not hard to see why the government's capacity to do that thing that you care about is going to be greatly diminished uh, with this plan. And, and the last thing I'll say about sort of fiscal prudence, this is not the only solution that we have. I mean, all of the governor's rhetoric says that this is the only path forward. You know, we have a billion dollars in deferred maintenance costs. The prisons are overcrowded now. We have to do something there is literally an option that would, instead of costing the state nearly $3 trillion or a billion dollars, uh, would literally save us money. We can just let people out of jail. We can change, we can like decriminalize marijuana retroactively. We could significantly curb our, our prison population just by changing the law and, and just by letting people out of prison who most Americans like don't deserve, you know, don't believe deserve to be there. Um, and so it is really, really frustrating as a young person to see the state with these two options, right? Like let people out of prison and save money immediately or just torch $2.6 billion uh, and just hope that history doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. And I'll say, I know that you know, this has been something that's been catching my attention for many uh, years. I remember, I, I believe it was 2017, and also, I think a few years after that, too, there's been multiple reports from the Department of Justice, even under the Trump administration, to look at, you know, nice big red Alabama and say, well, you guys are the worst system, prison system in the United States for prisoner safety. And uh, prisoner safety is kind of the main thing. Alabama has been cited for failing at greatly. Uh, so when, when it comes to, you know, I, I think that there are people that have, you know, abolished prison kind of uh, a belief system. And I actually am, you know, sympathize with a lot of their concerns. Uh, when it comes to Alabama, we, we live in a state where I think it's, it's fair to say they may not get rid of all their prisons anytime soon, but, um, what do you feel is going to be any type of solutions that you could start to make to improve the uh, criminal justice system within our state? Yeah, sure. Um, one thing I want to touch on briefly, though, because I think it kind of uh, aids what I was saying a second ago. The Department of Justice and, and the reason that this plan uh, is, is being set in motion is because, yeah, the Department of Justice found that our prisons were unconstitutional, uh, not because of overcrowding, because of violence. And the DOJ report specifically said Alabama cannot build its way out of this crisis. That DOJ report has more than two pages of recommendations for how Alabama can, you know, uh, fall back within the confines of the Constitution. Not one of those recommendations, Calvin, uh, is, is, is to build more prisons. Yeah. So, you know, not to, to, to bore your listeners with, with too much policy, you know, jargon or, or, or discourse, but I mean, some, some really easy examples would be uh, retroactive decriminalization of marijuana. And that means decriminalizing marijuana in Alabama, and it means applying those laws, not just to future offenders, uh, but to people who are currently incarcerated uh, for laws which would you know, change uh, and, and be removed with decriminalization. 
Another good example would be to repeal the Habitual Felony Offender Act, otherwise known as the Three Strikes Law, uh, which is you know, the law, like I mentioned, uh, that, that gives you a life sentence if you um, commit three felonies in the state. Another great example of a legal change that we could make would be to reclassify uh, what constitutes like a felony or a violent felony uh, in Alabama, removing things, you know, like stealing a camera from someone's car at night. Uh, those things should not be violent felonies. We need to change sentencing laws. I and mean, we have some of the most draconian laws in the nation, uh, particularly when it comes to drug policy. And the research is unified in that, you know, not only are prisons functionally not rehabilitative, uh, but so many of the problems that we treat with prisons could be better solved by so many other things. And I think that, you know, conversations of, of prison abolition aside, at least for the time being, uh, what we do know is that the problems for which our society currently views incarceration as the solution, many of those could probably be better solved uh, through things that aren't just like locking people away. Um, investing in education, rehabilitation, reentry, job training. Uh, these are things that the governor's $2.6 billion plan uh, sets aside no new money for. Um, and so in addition to changing some of the, the laws in Alabama that ensure we have people going, to, I mean, unless we really change like who we send to prison and for how long, we're gonna find ourselves in this situation over and over and over again. And so, yeah, in addition to changing laws like that, we can invest more in the, the programs that I mentioned, uh, and really, I mean, the tagline that we see a lot of activists in Alabama use, I think is particularly powerful uh, because of its, uh, honestly, because of its truth. We need to invest in communities and not prisons. Uh, we need to tackle the root causes of, of crime, which in a lot of ways, and in many cases, is, is social inequity and scarcity generated through a system that ignores people's fundamental needs. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, fixing or you know, reducing poverty is going to end the need for incarceration overnight, but there are certainly more uh, prudent solutions. And, and when it comes to immediately resolving uh, the, the DOJ's finding that our prisons are unconstitutional, uh, I think the most obvious answer is, is just release people. Um, but you know, there's, it, it's a tricky conversation because it's easy to make someone realize uh, that maybe this plan isn't a good idea, uh, but people have a lot of different perspectives on where we should go instead. And I think my chief concern as, as an advocate, um, and you know, I've got my own personal opinions, but as, as an advocate, I think my chief concern is we've got something that's uniting us right now. Let's get behind that and, and figure it out uh, later down the line, because if we are all as a state or the majority of us as a state are unified in the notion that this plan is bad, uh, we know that there are, are solutions and it's a matter of choosing the solutions that we pursue. Uh, not the, the concern is not whether there is an existence of alternative solutions because there is, you know, the simplest one is just to let people out of jail who have been spending in uh, an indefensible amount of time there for laws that, like I said, most Americans just don't think are just. Yeah. And, and I actually kind of wanted that, that the way you ended that, I think works well with moving into the next uh, question I have for you. When it comes to, 
when it comes to, you know, me and you were talking about this earlier, when there is a conversation about purely policy and purely, um, uh, purely, you know, taking the politics out of an issue and discussing solutions and discussing what is the problem, most Americans, at least most people, seem to be able to agree on what is the problem. Um, we just may have different solutions. So how receptive um, and how accepting of the idea that this is a problem has the the people that you all have spoke to, maybe, uh, or you and you yourself, I don't know if you've spoken with many people, I'm sure you have spoken with many people throughout the state about, uh, you know, the, the current situation with our prison system. How do the, the people of Alabama feel about this so far? You know, I've heard all sorts of things. Um, I think you know, my immediate social circle is certainly not a representative sample uh, of Alabamians writ large. I think the most people that I talk to recognize that it's a problem. And like you said, they just maybe have different opinions on what the solution is. But I mean, I've really heard all sorts of perspectives. I've heard people who are progressives, who are concerned that, you know, uh, people are suffering uh, under, you know, extreme conditions of overcrowding uh, right now. And that perhaps to alleviate people's suffering, we need to, uh, you know, build new prisons. I've heard people sort of just parrot um, what Governor Ivey and the state has said that, you know, we have this problem and and this is the only uh, solution possible. Uh, But I mean, for example, on the protest on Monday, uh, I was out there starting at 7 a.m. The protest started at 4. And what, you know, some of the other organizers and myself were doing just kind of talking to people on the street. And we had one person uh, all day who came up to us and was just like, you're wrong. You guys are idiots. You don't know what you're talking about. You college kids just like always want something to protest. Uh, Here's why I think we need to build the prisons. And when I tried to engage, um, you know, he was just like, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to hear your (laughs) pre-canned answers, even though, you know, I mean, I was, it was clearly just like a conversation. He's like, I don't want to hear your pre-canned answers and just left. Um, With the exception of that particularly negative interaction, I actually had conversations with tons of people who were like, yeah, I never knew this was a problem. Um, This is definitely an issue. I spoke with people who actually thought that we needed to build the prisons, but, you know, they weren't necessarily diehard prison advocates like apparently this guy is. And I'm I'm not lying. I mean, I had, I think, three people be like, you have changed my mind uh, on this issue. And I think that, you know, I've spoken to a lot of my friends' parents who are more conservative uh, than some of my social circles. And particularly on the fiscal side of things, I found that most people are really, really receptive to the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be lighting our money on fire uh, and kind of just burying our heads in the sand and hoping that a problem we've seen grow and grow and grow in the past won't just, you know, will just change, you know, the course all, all of a sudden. I think one of the biggest problems is not that people aren't kind of on the same page. It's that there's been so little dialogue about this issue. I mean, one of the larger or one of the other problems with with the prison construction is that Governor Ivey has been doing most of this in backroom deals. Uh, You know, she's doing this without the consent of the legislature, without the consent of, of the people. Uh, most people don't really know about the impending prison construction. And I, I think that's clear to see that it's a, a deliberate and, and concentrated effort. I mean, outside of a few uh, press statements and, and press releases, 
some published rhetoric from, you know, ADOC and from Governor Ivey's office, you know, they've kind of just said, like, look, uh, there's a problem and this is the only solution. And those are the two biggest pieces to, I think, pushing the needle on this issue is one, letting people, more people know the problem that we're facing and the problem with the solution the governor has proposed as well as pushing back on the greatest lie that Governor Ivey has told throughout this process, which is that in response to this problem, we can all agree exists, there is but one solution. I mean, what a joke. Like, there are so many ways to deal with this problem, and it's such a tragedy that, that Governor Ivey's messaging has been, eh, you know, disagree with this plan if you want, but there's really only one, one way forward. And I think anyone who, who sort of thinks about policy solutions, who thinks about, you know, societal problems, who's, you know, I mean, really, most people, I think, probably understand that there's, you know, as the expression goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, There is more than one way to address the prison crisis in Alabama, because there's more than one way to do most things. Um, I, I do think, Calvin, I do think people, when they hear about this, this issue, understand that it's an issue. And I do think that most people when they're given the information about this plan, uh, realize that it's a mistake. And I think the biggest challenge for, for us as an organization and for the people who are really trying to push the needle on this issue is to convince more people and, and raise more awareness about why the Governor Ivey's plan is bad and try to push back on the narrative that even if it has its flaws, it's the only solution because that is just a bold faced lie. Yeah. And, and that's something that, I mean, uh, just zooming out a little bit, talking about kind of national politics, you know, we are in a, in a time of, it seems as though the general atmosphere for great judicial change, great criminal justice change, great, uh, decimation of this prison industrial complex that we have in this nation the the atmosphere is here for it right but there hasn't been much action taken on it so what, mm. what do you feel as far as someone that you know that is going to the political arena um and i'm sure will be a policy maker one of these days um what do you feel on kind of a national level things that could be done to maybe push back on um a lot of issues that we see not only here in alabama Alabama is very unique in the sense of how harsh and how terrible right. our conditions are, and and and, and you know the prison uh, system here is. But nationally, we see many of these problems in other states too, and we see many of these problems um, in in even some you know federal uh, facilities. So you know, how, how do you feel about that? Kind of where we are as a right. country, and and what issues maybe should be should be put forward as, as really, you know, or what solutions, I'm sorry, should be put forward maybe uh, on a national level. Yeah, so um, I'm going to step aside from my, uh, my capacity to speak in any way for Alabama Students Against Prisons uh, and just give you my, my honest answer. Uh, there is an incredible book uh, that I think anyone who's interested in uh, not only just prisons and criminal justice uh, but the political economy of prisons, uh, the intersection between uh, capitalism and the modern economy and incarceration uh, should read. It's, it's a book called Carceral Capitalism uh, by 
a woman named Jackie uh, Wang. Uh, I think she has maybe like a postdoc at Harvard. I, I don't really know too much about her background. Um, and so what I'm going to say is, is sort of taken straight from her book, um, not necessarily as a policy recommendation, but just as a fact. Um, we've got to change the way that we finance municipal debt. I know that sounds like a very like bizarre answer to your question, uh, but the reality is that we have constructed a society for ourselves where incarceration is almost necessary uh, to to fund uh, the cities in America that have you know burgeoning debt crises. Uh, 90% of arrests in, or excuse me, uh, warrants in, I think, Texas are for outstanding fees and fines. Um, in many ways, uh, there, are, there are a lot of scholars who look at the criminal justice system uh, in, uh, excuse me, in America and think, you know, this is just a sort of uh, mechanism of, of institutionalized looting of the most vulnerable populations in America uh, out of, you know, fiscal necessity. Uh, and so I think that without getting too far into the weeds, um, without making some sort of grand statement about, uh, about capitalism, we are in a situation where there is a, even without private prisons, there is a profit motive to keep people in jail. There's a profit motive to police communities where fees, where, where, where resources extracted through fees and fines uh, can be used to fund, you know, municipal budgets. And, you know, it's one of the main reasons that people are anti-private prisons. And I think it's one of the main reasons that people should reconsider their perspective on policing in prisons, because the moment that you intertwine the profit motive, or in this case, the monetary necessity uh, with incarceration, uh, you're never going to produce like favorable outcomes. And I, you know, in terms of, it's not a, a, a policy proposal so much as something that I see as a, a matter of necessity for meaningful criminal justice reform. We've got to create and work toward a, a society where we don't rely on putting people in jail to pay for cities to run. Now, when it comes to the broader uh, and, and I guess more immediate uh, efforts on, on criminal justice uh, in, in America, I think that we are, I don't know, I, I'm cautiously optimistic despite understanding the, the claim that I just made. Uh, I think the needle is being pushed, but just very, very slowly. Uh, and so I don't know if I can really feel super comfortable uh, weighing in on the trajectory of prison reform or criminal justice reform yeah. in the United States. Uh, I am happy that Joe Biden is off in office, you know, compared to Trump when it comes to those things. But um, I'm really not in a position where I can just look at the state of the world and say, yeah, you know, we're like really in a good place vis-a-vis -vis criminal justice yeah. or, you know, I mean, you know, we're on the right track, like things are getting better. Um, because it's really hard to feel that way when the stage is set for things to get so much worse here in Alabama. That's true. Here in Alabama, and I think on the national level, you know, like, let's be honest. I mean, um, you know, obviously, when it comes to people like me and you who who, who may be a little bit more on the left than um, than your average Alabamian, 
um, you know, the the election of, of Joe Biden was seen as um, a better path than perhaps a, a second term of President Trump. But uh, there's also, you know, this is crime bill Joe Biden we're talking about, you know. So this right. is this is a guy where it's like this is this is no this is super predator Joe Biden. It, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the realization is that I think that it, it inspires me so great, man, to see you guys doing the work that you're doing at ASAP and so because I think that now more than ever, local grassroots campaigns and uh, efforts to try and push the needle on the ground here in states like Alabama and in state houses, uh, talking to representatives and, and, and senators, these people uh, at local and state levels will, will probably be where we see the greatest opportunity for change, more so than uh, purely relying on, on the federal government or, or the White House or, or whoever to respond uh, to the problems we face. Um, and, and with that said, I want to ask you one last question. Uh, how do you feel about, I suppose, maybe the future of uh, the the movement to reform the prison system here in Alabama? Do you feel that there's there's some momentum kind of in you all's direction? Uh, obviously, there's a lot more fight and a lot more work to do. Um, but but are you more optimistic about the future? Gosh, that's a um, that's a tough question. I think that, you know, just because I'm spending so many hours of my, like my day working on this, I kind of have to bifurcate my, you know, armchair political scientist perspective and my, you know, my, my core beliefs. Um, I think in many ways I am, I am pessimistic and I, I, I worry. Um, but I think personally, uh, I am I am optimistic because I, I kind of need that optimism uh, in order to do this work. And what gives me faith is the energy that I felt in the protest on Monday was the amazing talents and uh, intelligence and compassion and empathy from the students that I've met working in this fight. I don't know whether I can really say uh, that I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the immediate term trajectory of criminal justice policy in Alabama. But one thing that I truly, truly believe is that as the leaders of tomorrow, we have the luxury of examining the leaders of today. And I think that whether or not this prison construction plan happens, uh, young people are, are waking up to the idea that just because something exists now doesn't mean it has to be that way. And I think that I am optimistic because I think the, the students that I see, the students that I speak with and, and work with are so passionate and so hardworking. And for me to have any semblance of faith in the American project, I have to believe in the power of, of work like that, of grassroots organizing, of having conversations with strangers on the street outside of regions. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I can't say. Yeah. I, I wish that I felt more qualified um, to answer yeah. the question. But yeah, I mean, personally, I, I have my own feelings. Uh, but when it comes to the work that I do, 
uh, and my sort of operational beliefs as opposed to my more philosophical ones, uh, I am cautiously optimistic and excited more than anything about the future for student voices to be heard and for students to build power with each other to try to make the world look a little bit more like what they think it should. Yeah. And and I'll say this, man, I'm kind of there with you in the sense of like, you know, I, I acknowledge that the reality of where we are in, in, in politics now, like, look, let's be real. We got a, you know, a, a guy that's, that's practically a moderate Republican as president. Uh, we've got a, we've got a, a lady who uh, has, has not the best uh, history of criminal justice as attorney general of California as the vice president. We've got, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of reasons to be down if you're looking at the future but uh anyway if you're looking at where we are now but i do feel i think more excited now than i have before in my uh you know kind of political uh growth and the ability to to really examine where we are as a country and, and as a state I'm very excited about the potential of the future, I think, because like you said, I mean, so many of uh, our generation, we do look at what what the systems that so many uh, older generations have looked at and said, hey, that's just the way things are. And it's just what it is. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot less of that feeling in our generation. There's a lot more of a, a feeling of, hey, that's the way things are, but we have the power to change it. So let's work toward making that happen. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that, you know, some of the work that you organization like you all are doing it and uh, and, and, you know, more and more efforts across this country to make it better and to truly make it great. Uh, not not uh, great in, in any you know rhetorical sense that we've seen in the past few years or in the past few decades. But uh, to wrap it up here, David. First off, I want to say again, thanks for coming to talk with me. It's awesome to have this chat, and I look forward to hopefully having you back on sometime later on. Um, remind us where we can find information about ASAP. Yeah, so the best place to do that is going to be uh, our Instagram page. Uh, if you, we're we're the uh, AL Students Against Prisons. Um, we have a Facebook and a Twitter as well. Uh, but I think the primary way to get information about our group, particularly in the buildup to the protest on the 9th, is going to be that that Instagram. Um, we are close to 400 followers now uh, and are posting, uh, we're posting content daily. Uh, and, and yeah, uh, for anyone who's listening, um, we are staging a protest uh, at Court Square Fountain in Montgomery, Alabama on January 9th. Uh, that's set this Saturday. Uh, from 1 to 5 p.m. And we're going to have speakers from across the community, from a variety of perspectives, uh, share their thoughts and their concerns about the impending prison plan and about the trajectory of incarceration in Alabama. We're going to have chants. We're going to like march around. Uh, we're going to go out to Montgomery and try our best to show those in power that at the very least we are watching and and we are we are listening, um, and you know our our message to uh, the leaders of today is that history will remember your choices. We will remember your choices, and our message to the leaders of tomorrow, students like you and me, uh, is that 
the future is in our hands. And we are just trying to uh, help all of us in this state uh, make that make that true. So yeah, uh, check us out on Instagram. Um, I would love for anyone who's listening to to get involved with the group. Um, we have a very horizontal leadership structure. Um, we all believe in uh, expanding our leadership as much as possible, our membership as much as possible, and and hearing from everyone uh, who's a student in the state. So if you are a student in Alabama uh, or you're a student who's from Alabama and maybe you're studying somewhere else, uh, DM us on Instagram and we'll get you plugged into the group me and you know you can just get updates and uh, be in the group me and be a member, or you can work with us, uh, in, in so many different capacities. Uh, uh, you know, if, if you want to get involved, uh, we are always looking for more people, uh, and are trying to expand our coalition, uh, as much as possible, uh, with every day that goes by. So, yeah. Well, wonderful. David, thank you for coming on, man. And, uh, I hope you folks enjoyed this episode and, uh, I'll be back next week to rant about our government as I do every week. But uh, this week was a little bit more focused, a little bit more targeted uh, to conversation to discuss uh, a more local issue, because uh, I, I do normally cover kind of national politics on this podcast. So, David, thank you once again for coming on, man. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me, Calvin.